Welcome to In the Weeds with Nicole Asquith, exploring the way culture shapes our relationship to the natural world. When you hear the word mermaid, chances are the first associations that come to mind are from popular culture. You might think of Disney's retelling of Hans Christian Andersen's A Little Mermaid, which is much less dark than the original. You might recall the 80s movie Splash with Daryl Hannah and Tom Hanks. Or if you've ever had a six-year-old daughter, you might just think of all the mermaid paraphernalia, the thermoses, the backpacks. There's a certain mermaid cliché, often blonde, pale skin, maybe sitting on a rock, looking in a mirror and combing her hair. But my two guests for this episode will tell you that mermaids and merfolk of all kinds are much more complex and diverse than these associations might lead you to believe. Christina Bakilega is Professor Emerita of English at the University of Hawaii in Manoa, where she taught fairy tales and their adaptations, folklore and literature, as well as cultural studies. She co-edits Marvels and Tales, Journal of Fairy Tale Studies, and her most recent book from 2021 with Jennifer Orme, Inviting Interruptions, Wonder Tales in the 21st Century, features Maya Kern's comic, How to Be a Mermaid. Marie Alohalani Brown, a specialist in Hawaiian religion, culture, and oral and literary traditions, is an associate professor of religion at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. She's also a translator, a writer of her own stories, and her most recent book, published this last January, focuses on Hawaiian reptilian water deities, the Mo'o, which we'll be discussing. Together, they are the co-editors of the Penguin Book of Mermaids, a compendium of mermaid stories that spans 25 centuries and countries all over the world, from ancient Babylon to pre-Christian Europe, from Africa to Hawaii. And while the stories may differ in significant ways from one place to another, some of these water creatures, instead of having a fish tail, for example, have the tail of an anaconda or a whale. There are also remarkable similarities, echoes, which suggest that there is something fundamental to human culture about this idea of creatures that bridge the human world and the water world. Recently, mermaids have experienced something of a resurgence. Books like Monique Raffet's Mermaid of Black Conch, Imogen Hermaid Goar's The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock, and Lydia Millet's Mermaids in Paradise, which I discuss with Lydia Millet in our next episode, use mermaids to challenge gender stereotypes to examine the legacy of colonialism and address ecological issues. Even in popular culture, mermaids are getting a redo. Disney is planning a live-action remake of A Little Mermaid with Halle Bailey as Ariel. Thus, departing from the stereotype that mermaids are white, we'll be talking about this as well. And there's also a splash remake in the works with Channing Tatum as the Merman. We begin our conversation by talking about why mermaid stories are common in so many different cultures. In other words, what is going on here? What is at stake in these stories? Here's Marie Alohalani Brown. Life as we know it wouldn't be possible without water. And normally we think of that as fresh water, but then think of the ocean as part of a larger water cycle. And so what was interesting to me across cultures is the different ways that their water spirits or mermaids embodied the life-giving and death-dealing characteristics of water, the way that they could be associated with a specific locality and the role of that particular water spirit in that culture. One of the things that's fascinating about 
this book is because you read mermaid story after mermaid story, you start to be very conscious of the similarities and of the differences and certainly that connection to water. And as you say, the life-giving aspect, but also the taking of life, <laughs> you know, the, the threat of drowning in particular that's associated with that, how much that is built into these recurrent themes about the mermaid, you know, the mermaid as attractive, as alluring, as beautiful, but also as threatening in some way. Well, just as water cannot be contained, right? This is Christina Bakilega picking up the thread. Water will always find a way to flow and move. I think women are also seen in that way. And so there is a gender dimension here. And, you know, if we think back to Simone de Beauvoir and woman as other, the whole sense of how women give birth, but of course in giving birth also bring into being a life that is finite, there will be death, right? So that sense of connection between women and water is also important to the conceptualization of the mermaid. Not that there are only mermaids. I mean, that was one of the lovely things about our project, finding out how many mermen there were and how similar and different those stories are and how in some stories you have whole realms underwater, right? So it's a whole world of beings and not just an isolated mermaid coming to the surface to entice the human. Right, which is one of those things that's so striking to anyone who's been snorkeling or been under the water, particularly where there's a coral reef, but in, in various parts of the ocean, that sense of this parallel world that exists outside of human intervention. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting that film like Disney's Little Mermaid actually captured that to a certain extent, but it also really projected the sense of how that was not the world to be in. <laughs> that was not the right place. Right. Or the heroine. It's only a realm that we can momentarily access. And I think that's also part of the fascination. And one of the things that Christina and I discussed and found interesting was the different ways that these mermaid stories draw our attention to human views about the female other. So the way that British accounts or European accounts might depict mermaids and human mermaid relationships are quite different, for example, like in my culture, in the Hawaiian culture. Yeah, so talk to us a little bit about the Hawaiian culture. So you talk about the water deities. Tell me how we pronounce their name. Mo'o is a Hawaiian word for lizard, but it also refers to lizard gods. But before answering your question, I really would like Christina to give us an overview, if you don't mind, Cree, <clears throat> about uh, Britain depictions of mermaids so that you can better contrast with what sure. I... Sure. Well... Okay, I'm, I, I don't know that I'm going to say much about British things, but I'm thinking about a European context or a Mediterranean and Atlantic context. So in more modern stories about mermaids and other 
hybrid beings in the water, right? So we have selkies, we have other kinds of beings in water spirits. We see a big change, I think, when we compare the modern stories to pre-Christian ones, where beings from the water, whether we're talking about gods like Oannes or the sirens in the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, those beings were associated with knowledge. So their power had to do with knowledge, knowledge that human beings did not have about the water, about the natural world, about how to be and live in the natural world. They continued to be, these beings continued to be mysterious, but we see with mermaids that their power then becomes that of sexuality rather than knowledge. And it's interesting because we talk about the seduction of the sirens with the Odyssey and Odysseus, but seduction as a word, as a concept, had no association with sexuality really at the time. It was only later in the early modern period that seduction seems to have narrowed down in its meanings to sexuality. So when we look at the mermaids and other beings like the selkies, often in more modern stories, they are either powerful, meaning they can bring death, or they can signal that death will come, or they can be extracted from their own habitat and their world and domesticated into a human world and a patriarchal world specifically. So they become wives, human wives, and they're taken away from their watery worlds. And I think one of the problems there is that they are kind of, I, I, I like to think about them as being appropriated by humans, right? And they're made proper because they're made into a human wives, but they're also property in a way. They become property of the humans. And, and that's kind of, uh, in a way, it signals our relationship to the ocean, our relationship to the water. We extract from it. We take from it. We make use of it. We domesticate it. We capture it. And then we dirty it and destroy it in a way. Can I ask a follow-up question to that? It seems to me that there are certainly many stories about mermaids being captured in some way and, like you say, extracted from their natural environment. But in a lot of stories, that also seems problematic in the sense that, you know, either the mermaid escapes or some ill befalls the person. On the one hand, they're representing this exploitative relationship to the natural world right? But on the other hand, some of the stories are complicating that by indicating that problems come when you exploit the natural world. Well, that's why it's so interesting because when you come to a lot of, um, well, let's use Hawaiian water spirits. When it comes to Hawaiian culture, these mo'o women, no human tries to domesticate them. 
if anything, they can only be drawn and try to survive the experience of being the partner or lover of a mo'o woman. So that's where our stories differ. So mo'o are freshwater deities. They're not associated with the ocean, only tangentially. They really do represent the life-giving and death-dealing qualities of water. And their personalities, there's many, many mo'o deities, and their personalities also differ. But one thing about the mo'o is that very often those mo'o who have a human form are said to be incredibly beautiful. And they're very attracted to human males. And they never adapt to the male. It's the male that must adapt to them. So they have more agency. Yes. Could you maybe tell us a short version of a story just to give people a taste of one Sure. Of well, Kalanamai Nu'u is a mo'o whose human form is among the most beautiful. And she has a reputation of seducing human men. And in one account, she seduces Puna'ai Kawa'e, a ruling chief of Oahu, uh, who happens to be the husband of Pele, the volcano goddess, older sister, Valinu'u. Now, when Kalamainu'u meets Puna'ai Kawa'e, she is surfing, and he's going surfing, and they only have eyes for each other. And she tricks him into swimming, paddling on their boards for 30 miles from Oahu to the island of Molokai. And there she leads him to her cave in a secluded upland valley and then keeps him like a prisoner until he finally escapes. And because of that, she wages war against the entire Pele clan. It ends unhappily for her and, incidentally, for Puna'ai Kua'e, as readers will discover in the story. But she epitomizes the seductive mo'o. But mo'o are also, mo'o are honored as fish pond deities because they have the power to attract fish and lead them where they will. And so this power, which we call mana, to attract the fish, that's the life-giving quality. Now, the opposite side of that is the death-dealing qualities of attraction. Human men can rarely resist a mo'ovahine when she sets out to seduce them, and it rarely ends well for the human men. Now, in many of our stories, our traditional stories about female goddesses, you will all see them as being quite powerful, immense agency, and all the human men have no agency. They are hapless. I wonder if the power of seduction in those stories is of a different quality than the kind of seduction we see in some of these European-based stories that we're talking about. Because just listening to you, I'm thinking about one of the things that's striking about these Mo'o stories is just the power that these water deities embody. And I wonder if the seduction is part and parcel in some ways of that power that they embody. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's it's very different from like the dainty mermaid who sits on a rock combing her hair, <laughs> right? No, these these mo'o women are not dainty. They're powerful. 
When they change into their gigantic reptilian form, they are terrifying. They have huge gaping mouths full of sharp teeth. One Mo'o woman, Ka'uolehu, she's not in this book, is very, very old. She no longer has that physical appearance to attract men, and she likes to eat them, not seduce them. So what does she do? She sends out her beautiful young granddaughter to go and attract men, bring them back to her cave where she begins eating their eyeballs as a sort of appetizer. So can you talk a little bit about how these stories are used in culture? Are, are they conveying a certain message, would you say, about water or about the natural world more broadly? Are they teaching a lesson of sorts? There's different lessons. On one level, it's a reminder about the power of water and the power of nature and our world, our place in that world. We are not the apex predators in the natural world. And then on the other hand, it's also be careful for what you wish for, for what you desire. Yeah. That's always a good lesson. <laughs> right. Christina, I'm sure, has thoughts about uh, one of the stories that she analyzes, Honokawailani, yeah? Oh, well, this is a, a mermaid story in Hawaii on the island of Oahu in uh, the area of Eva. And what happens in this story is that there's this beautiful young woman who goes out with her friends and bathes in this pond and enjoys herself and then doesn't come back home. So her mother is looking for her desperately, wants her back, and finally goes to Lonokabailani and sees her emerging from the water and asks her, begs her to come home to her, and she'll comb her long hair and be with her and all of that. And her daughter is looking at her lovingly, but says no. And then this male figure appears next to her. And when they both dive into the water, they both have fish tails. So what's happened there is that this young woman has actually turned into a mermaid, joined a different world. That particular pond has both fresh and salt water. So we know that it's, a, it's kind of a meeting place, if you want of cultures, and she's chosen to abandon the human world. Unfortunately, also her family, right? So there's, um, I think Alohalani has made me more aware of how there is a sad dimension to the story, a sadness to it, but I also see it as a story that is about embracing a different world, a different way of being. And when that happens in European stories, in my experience, it's only temporary. And it's men, usually, who are, you know, part of the mermaid's world for a little while. We rarely know anything about it. And then they have to kind of be rescued <laughs> because that is captivity, not exploration and embracing of a different culture. Another thing about the Kalamainu'u story, thank you, Cree, because I just thought about this, is that 
she is desperate to find love. She happens to be, unfortunately for her, attracted to human males, but she's reluctant to show her true self, the reptilian self, because she doesn't trust the men to love her for who she truly is. And so at one point in this story, Puna'ai Kauai meets her brother, Hinale, when she finally gives Puna'ai Kauai permission to go down to the seaside to join in human activities down at the seashore. And Hinale says, your woman isn't a true woman. She's a god. And if you sneak back and watch her, you'll discover the truth. And so he does sneak back and he observes her in her reptilian form. And she, of course, realizes that and becomes furious. And as she rants and raves in her mo'o form, he sits there quietly, stoic. And then she finally calms down. And the storyteller says, after that, she trusted him even more than before. And they were even more in love. But Puna Aikua'e was biding his time until he could enact the plan to escape her. And so for me, there's also that sad aspect, that philosophical question of being accepted for who we are, even though the monstrous parts of us. And here she has all of my sympathy because she truly believed that he loved her. You're reminding me of the Melusine story from medieval times in Europe where, you know, the issue of how true you are to a relationship, what are the secrets that you keep, right, in order to make a relationship work are part of that story as well. Uh, Melusine is a very powerful being. Sometimes she's described as a dragon, a flying dragon. Sometimes she's described more as a sea serpent and sometimes as bow. And when this king or prince runs into her, she is, of course, this beautiful maiden near a water spring. And he falls in love with her and wants to marry her. And she agrees, but she has a condition that she will, on a certain day of the week, Saturday, I think, have that time to herself privately in a place where there's water. I don't know. You know, I imagine like a modern spa now kind of thing. <laughs> and they agree, they have a child together, all of that. But one day, he betrays her trust. So it's all about trust. He betrays her trust and spies on her and discovers her true form, which is to be a serpentine water being. And at that point, she flies away in horror and pain, of course, because he has not been trustworthy. Now that has then turned into the duplicity or the duplicitous nature of the mermaid. You know, so things get turned around. Can you expand on that? What do you mean by the duplicitous nature of the mermaid? Well, okay, so let's, you just brought up the image of the mermaid 
we see her torso, we see her often bare breasts and her beautiful hair is flowing. And we don't see the fishtail in the water. Okay. Sometimes when we do, she is also holding a child, though, on that sitting on the rock. Okay. But when she's alone, often we don't see that fish aspect of her body. So there's mystery, right? And that mystery becomes sexual seduction. But because she is not just a woman, her double nature is interpreted as somewhat treacherous. You're not who you appear to be. And then there's the sense of mutability, right? Oh, it looks like she's wants the sailor to come and consort with her, but actually she wants him dead. So there's that sense of how woman's mystery and especially a hybrid being's mystery is treacherous. So, so let's talk a little bit more about the hybrid nature of mermaids because I think that's a big part of what's fascinating about them. So you're saying in some ways that makes them duplicitous, it makes them not entirely trustworthy, but it's also what allows them to bridge, obviously, the human and the non-human animal realm, which is part of, I think, what makes them such rich territory. And perhaps, especially nowadays, when we have so much to worry about in terms of our relationship to the natural world. So I was wondering if you have any thoughts about that, about how their hybrid nature connects them, how it establishes a relationship between humans and the natural world. I think one of the ways in which it establishes a relationship is that the mermaid reminds us that in evolutionary terms, we come from the water. We come from the ocean, right? So we are relatives in a genealogy, if you want, of life on earth, on this planet. I think Mermaids remind us also of the possibility of transformation, adaptability and transformation, because many of these beings, and the mo'o as well, can assume different forms. The body is adaptable. The body changes in relation to its habitat, in relation to its environment. There are different ways of being that are possible. So if, if I think about how mermaiding as a practice is popular today, I think that's the relationship that contemporary women especially are seeking with the mermaid. Being able to change who you are. Kind of yes, taking yeah. on different to, guys to be a woman outside the box and to relate to n- nature and water in different ways. Do you have anything to add, Alohalani, about the kind of hybrid nature of these creatures? Yes, um, when it comes to mo'o, some mo'o can assume a human form, but there's other forms associated with them. They're all phenomena in the natural world. Some mo'o can change into a water form. 
some into a dog, into different types of fishes. And in our stories, we have stories that are human-centric. And in these stories, the mo'o is something to be feared. But then there are many traditions in Hawaiian culture where humans don't really have anything to do in the story. It's about the relationship of the Mo'o clan with other clans, such as the Pele clan, the clan of volcanic deities. And here we can really see how these different spirits, whether they're water spirits, fresh water such as Mo'o or ocean water such as sharks and eels, how they really embody the different phenomenon of the island world. And in, in these stories, Mo'o are not always antagonistic towards human. Not at all. They can be ancestors. For example, the kinship and antagonism between the Pele and Mo'o clans represent a larger natural cycle of two opposite elements, water, as in fresh water, and then fire in the form of volcanic lava, right? So what you see here is this cycle of nature that includes catastrophes such as lava flows, but also recognizes that the island world whose foundation is lava, but it's the water from the rain that forms the rivers and waterfalls that shape the island along with erosion such as wind. And so it's really a different take on these hybrid shapeshifters. That makes me think about something you write in your introduction about how these mermaid stories take on a different valence in animist cultures. So in cultures in which nature is perceived as alive, as constituted of, of living beings. And I wonder if that plays a role in what you're describing. Yes. For example, there is a famous mo'o named Pana Eva, and the forest it guards is a rainforest. And so therefore, it's part of the water cycle, attracting water, and then a place where there are many different pools and springs. And so Pana Eva is the guardian here. And so because the forest is quite close to the Kilauea volcano, Pele's Lava flows have often destroyed large swaths of this forest. And so when we see the Hi'iaka Ikapoli o Pele tradition, it's a tradition of Pele and her little sister Hi'iaka, you see that when Hi'iaka asks permission to pass through his forest, he denies her and he calls her and her family, you stone-eating women, which is an apt description of what the lava flow does. It eats stones, it eats trees. And though Hi'iaka is not responsible for those flows because she is actually the deity who revegetates her sister's lava flows, but because she is part of the Pele clan, she is guilty by association. So in this sense, Pana Eva is a water protector. And often when you see these mo'o in different stories, fighting with the Pele clan, it's because they recognize them as a force that can destroy the waters that they protect. There are also other ways, right, in which mermaids and other water beings are protectors. 
because I think it's really important to think about them as protectors of water, protectors of the places where they live. Like the mermaid of Trinidad and Tobago, right? the one who has the anaconda. She's famous for that, and she will sometimes take human males as her husband and then put them to work to help protect her forest. And she will turn human girls into mermaids to situate them in certain localities to protect those waters. They're also protectors of people with whom they feel a connection. And we see that there's a children's story called Suki and the Mermaid. It's a story from the American South, Southern on an island. It's a African-American and Caribbean kind of uh, story that features a young girl who is abused by her stepfather. So you get a kind of fairy tale dimension to it, but finds strength and the will to become her own powerful self by interacting with a mermaid who, again, this is an illustrated book, is not featured as the dainty, blonde-haired mermaid of European stories. She's uh, black, strong, beautiful, absolutely beautiful being whose connections go back to Mamiwata. So that's one example. There's an artist, a mixed-media artist, who I really admire, Gabrielle Vai. She's Jamaican and um, Tigrayan, of Jamaican and Tigrayan background. And she's done a short movie called The Water Will Carry Us Home, which features a slave ship from which women and children in particular and pregnant women are being thrown into the water to die. And this is going back to historical accounts. What she represents is these Orisha or water spirits, water deities, taking these bodies and revitalizing them, giving them new life as mermaids. So there is freedom and new life in the water thanks to these deities that are from Africa from the continent that people were forcefully taken away from. So I think that that connection between the mermaids and other water spirits and human beings can be really enriched when we think outside of the Euro-American box. And increasingly, these black mermaids, these indigenous beings are coming into being culturally. Yeah, there there's so many interesting reimaginings of mermaids. One that I really liked is The Mermaid of Black Conch by Monique Rafi, which is set on a fictitious Caribbean island. It's a love story between a man of African descent who lives on this island and the mermaid who is of Taino origin. So she's a indigenous to the Caribbean and she's has been put under a spell. Uh, because she was too beautiful and therefore was distracting all of the men from their wives. And so a spell was put on her. And one of the things that I really love about this mermaid, too, is how much she is of the sea. She's described as being barnacle. She's not as singular, really. There's a kind of penetration 
between her and this kind of the sea as a whole when she is a, in her mermaid form, which I find really interesting. But also that story kind of connects some of these mermaid themes we've been talking about with a history of colonialism as well, because again, it's one of these stories where the mermaid in this case is fished from the ocean in this very sort of exploitative way by these tourists that have come from the U.S. And, you know, the violence of that sort of recreates things that we know are part of the history of this island. And so it kind of brings all these things together. So I I agree with you. Mermaids feel like this really rich kind of cultural heritage where people are finding interesting ways to connect things and to take it away from some of the European cliches that we associate with mermaids. Oh, talking about cliches and African mermaids, a while back in the news version of The Little Mermaid that starred Halle Berry, what people don't realize is that There are over 50 nations on the African continent, and many of them have water spirits, including different types of mermaids. So there are black mermaids. There are brown mermaids. There's a history of that across place and time. And so the uproar amongst a certain part of the population who thought, well, there's no such thing as black mermaids. We invite you to read our book to be introduced to a number of black mermaids from around the world, not just in Africa. That's a very good point. Has the Halle Berry come out yet? I thought that it hadn't come out yet. I don't think it has yet. It, It hasn't yet. But the controversy was happening when we were working on our book. And, you know, it made us think, okay, we need to get this book out there. (laughs) I bet. That's crazy. But it is important to realize that the mermaid is not necessarily beautiful, right? In many sightings, historical records, you know, there's this comment of like, well, they're not really that beautiful. (laughs) And that they're not just female, you have mer people and mer men, and that they're not just white. That's interesting. When you talk about sightings, it reminds me of, in your introduction, you write that mermaid stories did not emerge as fairy tales, that is, as fictions, but as myths and legends. Can you explain that distinction and why you think it's an important one? So, you know, in folklore studies and in literary studies as well, the most common distinction is that Myths and legends are belief stories. It doesn't mean that everybody believes there are mermaids or there are certain gods and so on. But at some point in time, including the present, the belief is circulating. With folk and fairy tales, we have fictional stories. And doesn't mean that the two are unrelated. Of course, they are related to one another. But in legends, there's more of a focus on a specific place that you can actually go and visit or that you grew up in and a specific historical time. So there's a relationship that is more historical and place-based. With fairy tales, there isn't. 
Right, right. That's why Ariel could appear wherever. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of Bedelheim and his book writes about how in fairy tales, it's often these sort of generic, you know, a girl, a boy, you know, a forest that allows you to kind of insert yourself into this sort of dream reality. That's very different from a story. And a lot of the mermaid stories in your book are very situated in a specific place and time. It'll say, you know, my grandmother told me the story as this was happening, you know, this was in the background. And a lot of them connect a modern context to an older context, too, because there's a sense of stories being passed down, which is one of the things I found striking. Right. I think that's really important. I mean, as a folklorist, I do, you know, talk about these distinctions, myth, legend, folk, and fairy tale. But, well, two things about it. One is that stories that are not fictional from colonized cultures were then translated and made into fairy tales. Okay, so their realness was taken away because they were just supposed to be fanciful, imaginary renditions of the world. So that's one thing. But the other thing I want to say is that all of these stories, whether they're fictional or not, they create these kind of social networks for us to think about ourselves in, whether we belong to them or whether we other them. They're all stories that that talk about how to be in the world, how to relate to one another, how to relate to non-human life. And I think it's not so much a lesson, me, but it, it is both knowledge that comes from the past into the present that we may have dismissed in some cases, but also just the opening up of different possibilities. So I know, Alohalani, what do you, what do you think? Hawaiian culture, its traditional religion is what we term a nature religion. All of our deities are nature deities. They embody the different phenomenon of the island world. And so our stories about these deities, their value lies in that they allow us to become familiar with the distant past, the way that our ancestors lived in close connection with their island world and how they understood it. So what I teach my students, I'm the specialist um, in my department, religion department for Hawaiian religion, is that speaking of stories and whether they are true or not is not the most effective methodological tool. What's important about them is how they connect us to the past, and we can use that knowledge to understand the present and prepare for the future. In Hawaiian culture, the island world is animate, but more than that, everything in that island world is kin to humans. We are the human kin of the other-than-human entities that inhabit our world, and the island world is the modality by which they make themselves known. It's a very different approach to stories. And we continue to tell stories today. 
I am also a creative writer, and my modern-day mo'o stories are based on traditional understandings of mo'o. So they're obviously fictional because I'm making up these mo'o deities, giving them names, giving them backgrounds, but the lessons or the knowledge there is still the same. It's about how we continue to perceive and understand these mo'o deities. Another thing it's important to understand in our world, gods do occasionally take humans as their partner and those offspring are half human. And so then these deities go on to be ancestral gods for the descendants of their children. The term for that is Aumakua. And so what started my interest in researching Mo'o is because I have a Mo'o Aumakua. And so for those of us who have an almakua, whether it's a shark almakua, um, pele, or, or mo'o, or owls, really anything, then we continue to honor our ancestor gods, our almakua. That is something that is very different from other cultures. Yeah, and That's fascinating. Is And... So is that something that you were taught as you were growing up? How did you become aware of this? It was so, I was so young that, that I don't even remember, but I just grew up with my mother explaining that we had a mo'o almokua and that because the little lizard that we see in our houses and on the land recall in miniature these more powerful reptilian forms, this is why the little lizard is sacred to the Mo'o gods, and that's why you don't harm them. So, yes, I grew up with many elements of our traditional culture. And this is quite common for many people in the Hawaiian community. Because the Mo'o are important in the Hawaiian community, many people can count a Mo'o Amakua amongst their family members. Mo'o are also water protectors, and so Mo'o continue to be an important part of our culture for many Hawaiians today. So they're not just myths, they're not just lessons, they're not just fairy tales. They are a part of our world even today. So I, I have a question for both of you, which is, what do you think both the Mo'o and other mer creatures have to tell us in the time of climate change and other environmental threats? Do you think that these stories can play a role in responding to, to the problems of today? Well, as far as Mo'o go, we continue to honor them as water protectors. So just recently, we've had a huge issue on Oahu with the military's storage tank of jet fuel that has been there since World War II and which leaked and polluted an aquifer, a major aquifer. It was built right over one in the Pearl Harbor area. Pearl Harbor is actually, no, is the actual name is Pu'ua. And then you might have heard of the Mauna Kea issue for the 30-meter telescope. It's garnered worldwide attention, so any of your listeners can look it up easily. But Mauna Kea houses several major aquifers for Hawaii Island. 
And so mo'o are continue to be evoked in not so much climate change, but as protectors of important water sources, fresh water sources that are in danger, that have been polluted or in danger of being polluted. That's really interesting. Christina, do you have any thoughts about mermaids and environmental issues? Well, yes. I think mermaids and other water spirit tales all over the world tell us something about what it is to be human and how to interact with non-human beings and our environment more generally. I think you mentioned earlier that, you know, there are stories of extraction and captivity of these beings, but we're also getting a sense that there's something wrong with that plot. There's something wrong with that story. And uh, so these stories invite us to think to reflect on how we want to interact with the world. There's a children's literature scholar, uh, Marek Ozievich, who talks about how these kinds of stories can generate justice consciousness. And that justice is not just about human beings, because as Olofalani was saying earlier, humans are not you know, at the top of some imaginary pyramid. So, you know, these tales don't talk about ocean mining, for instance, or pollution of aquifers, or the big island of plastic in the ocean, you know, but they can contribute, I think, to making us think about how we want to relate to the environment, how we want to make a future for all kinds of hybrid beings. Well, yes, right? Because when, especially for Hawaiians, there's so much activism here because there are so many things that are happening that are destroying islands and natural resources. And so understanding nature as animate and as kin really informs a perspective of activism. And so, you know, back in the day, the military used a sacred island, Koho'olawe, which is considered a form of the ocean god Kanaloa. And they used that for bombing. They bombed it so badly that they broke some of the water tables. And when you visit that place, you can only go on certain trails that have been cleared of the bombs, but then you see the broken land and how it's all red and because it's just bombed down to the the deep ground. And, and so... That's what informs, you know, when you talk about climate change and things like that, well, Hawaiians are at the forefront of any kind of movement pertaining to nature because not only is this our ancestral land, we speciated out of this land when our our Tahitian or Marquesian ancestors first arrived here. They spent enough time in sufficient isolation that their language changed, their religion evolved. And what many people don't realize is that we are still very much close to the land. We have a visceral love for the land. And so our deities are a part of our actions to preserve our islands and the world in general, because it's all one very large system. Thank you. I think one of my takeaways from this interview is going to be the notion of kinship. I find it really powerful to imagine as a child learning 
that you have a particular kinship to lizards, for instance. I think children naturally have a, a sense of kinship with other beings, with other animals. But to grow up with that knowledge of a specific kinship, that must be a very powerful well, it's, and it's not only that, because I might have a mo'o almakua, but when you swim in the ocean, you're very much aware that you're entering Kanaloa's realm. When you're entering the forest, there are numerous forest deities, and so you respect them. So it really informs your perspective towards the world. Now, when you are part of a culture that honors nature, you're going to have a different approach to its resources that maybe other cultures who see humans at the apex, for example, in Christianity, where the land is a resource for humans to use, that's quite a different perspective. And that perspective there has led to a lot of our problems, including climate change and overpopulation and everything else. For sure. Absolutely. Are there things that you would like to bring up that I haven't raised? Well, I have two things. Nicole, uh, one is that one of the big impetuses, I think, for our book was really that we both believe from the different positionalities and places that we come from, we both believe that sharing stories, retelling stories kind of feeds and changes cultures. So that that is really important to the project. I did want to say something about the Magritte. Oh yeah, painting, I would love to talk if about you don't that. Mind. Yeah, can you can okay. you start by just describing it a little bit in case my yeah. listeners aren't familiar yeah. with it? So the collective invention is a painting by Rene Magritte, uh, 1934, and it portrays a mermaid that is the opposite of what we usually envision when we think of a mermaid. The top half of the body it's a female body, is a fish, and the bottom part of the body is the pubic area and legs, a woman. This hybrid being is positioned in a very liminal place, just where the water, the waves of the ocean come to the sand. And of course, Magritte was a surrealist, so what he's showing us is you think you know what a mermaid is. And we have kind of collectively invented this being. But what happens if we reverse, right, that hybrid body? And what happens if we do that and see what the collective, very patriarchal imagination has invented? Here's this being that is available for the taking, right? As Onani K. Trask used to say about Hawaii, she's the woman that's available. She's the woman who has no soul, as in the older tr Christian tradition, because you can clearly see that she's animal, right? Now that her head is that of the head of a fish. And I think what struck me this time is, one, that this being is mute, has no voice, right? Because the fish is not speaking. And also, if we think of 
it as a woman, she's mutilated. There are no arms. She cannot defend herself. So she cannot speak. She has no arms. But she's kind of, an, you know, attractive. Again. Yeah, she's got shapely legs. Very what, good. One of my favorite stories in your book was the rewriting of Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid by the <laughs> Japanese novelist Kurahashi Yumiko. Yes. Um, and she... She uses that kind of mermaid, right? Top half fish, bottom half <laughs> human. Um, right. It's very clever. But she, one of the things that she also reverses is this business of the soul. I think rereading the Hans Christian Andersen, I was struck by the Christianity of it, among other things. And one of the ways that manifests itself is that the mermaid doesn't have a soul. And in some ways, what she wants as much as the prince is to obtain a soul the way that humans have. But in the Yumiko story, it's the reverse. The mermaid, in order to be with the prince, has to give up her soul. It's, very, it's a very clever story. I really enjoyed that one. What I'd like to add on to what Christina was saying earlier about how our book speaks to people think they know what a mermaid is. You read our book and you will see how that differs across time and place. And then we have 20 tales that appear for the first time in English. So translated from Estonian, Greek, Hawaiian, Ilocano, Italian, Japanese, Kasi, Persian, and Spanish. I think that I might have found the title for my episode. You may think you know what a mermaid is. <laughs> I like yes. that. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> I like that. Next time, my conversation with novelist Lydia Millett about her book, Mermaids in Paradise. I encourage you to read it ahead of time. For one thing, it's funny. And in my view, there are just not enough funny books for adults. If you have an idea for an episode or you just would like to reach out, you can email me at askwith, that's A-S-Q-U-I-T-H, dot in the weeds at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at in the weeds pod. We'll be back soon.